Now, I've got this amazing secret to share with you. I've discovered the secret to the perfect church. I've, I've, I've figured out the formula. This last week, I've been reading and I've figured out the, the, the perfect formula to the perfect church. Go tell everyone. Get rid of the people. Get rid of the people and you will have a perfect church. Jesus can come again. Heaven can come. If only that was the case. Instead, here we are together. Uh, And we bring our lives together and we enter into this mess called church uh, where God chooses us to be agents for his kingdom Uh, to bring about the redemption and the restoration of his kingdom. And so here we are. And as we come to our passage today, we've been in this letter for a little while now, but as we come, it seems like Paul is in the middle of an exam, there's 10 minutes left, and he just scribbles down every single thought he can cram in uh, before the examiner says, pens down. Uh, And that's what it looks like. You, You read through it, it's like Paul's just cramming in a whole bunch of stuff. Um, But really, what is going on? Paul is still talking about this one thing that we started all the way back in chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, to make you more like Jesus. To be set apart from the world. to, To be made holy. To be good, as God defines it. And Paul puts it another way uh, to the Ephesians, that, that is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what do we have here is Paul's ongoing explanation of what it is that God is doing in us. And what we're going to see is, we're going to pay attention particularly to verses 12 to 15, what this community called church looks like as we are being sanctified. And we start with these verses uh, in verse 12 about leaders. Into this thing called church, God places leaders. And how, how do you react? How do you respond when you hear this word, leader? Because as you, as you look around the world, as you look around you, it may not be such a positive idea. It may not be such a positive emotion or response that you, that you attach to this idea of leaders or leadership or authority. Uh, and, and let's be honest, the church is an immune. And in recent years, we've seen the scandals and the abuse of authority and power by these so-called leaders in the church. It's in the news. And if you've ever been on the other side of this abuse... It sucks. And I, for one, I'm sorry about that. Because that's not the way it should be. And yet, in, in God's wisdom and in his goodness, he chooses leaders as a means of building his church. Now, we see Paul outline here uh, certain things that he expects of leaders. Uh, they aren't given power to abuse and dominate the body of Christ. Instead, what do we see? Have a look in verses 12 and 13 with me. What do we see? We see that uh, they are to labor among you. They are over you in the Lord and they admonish you. They are intended to labor and work for you. The leaders of the church are here to labor, to serve you. 
They are here to provide oversight in the Lord. They are here to admonish you. So Christian leaders are to be servants in the body of Christ. Leaders are to look for opportunities to serve and to work for the body. Taking the example of Jesus just as he washed the disciples' feet. They labor for the body of Christ so that they might grow in the understanding of the gospel. Now, I I, I tell leaders all the time that they need to delegate. And I say it a lot. I say leaders need to delegate. But at the same time, leaders should be the first people who do the most menial jobs that you can find. In order to serve the body, leaders should be the first ones who are lining up. They should be lining up to clean the toilets, to take the rubbish out, to serve food to do the dishes and so on. Whatever you want to chuck in that list of menial jobs, leaders should be the first ones there because they are there to serve. Paul says that leaders are over you in the Lord. They provide oversight. And the writer of the Hebrews says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be a no advantage to you. The role of the Christian leader is to keep watch over your soul. They are concerned with your spiritual destiny because they will stand before God, as we read in Hebrews, and give an account for your faith. Let that sink in for a bit. Now, they are not responsible for your faith. That's up to you. But they are accountable for how they care and input into your walk with Jesus. They're accountable before God. And how do they do that? They do that... By admonishing you, this is a word we don't often hear. What does that mean? Uh, one dictionary defines it as admonishing someone is to lovely, lovingly attempt to correct their attitude or behaviour. To lovingly attempt to correct beh- attitude or behaviour. Uh, and, and now there is a seriousness to this. It's not just a, hey, come on, let's, let's get your act together. There's a seriousness to this. But it's not meant to be critical or judgmental. It's not, not the rebuke that we read about in Scripture. There is a time and place for rebuke. But, but in general, leaders admonish us in our faith, in our walk with Jesus. And it's meant to be done in love. And why? So that our attitude and our behavior might be corrected to be like Jesus. So there's this gentleness, this kindness, as they try and encourage and exhort you in your faith, and to walk with Jesus. So, so the faithful leader doesn't try and make you feel like crap, but instead they point out a weakness, they, they point out an area in, in need of growth, but they do that in love. They do that out of concern, not in an effort to, to stick you in the ground and make you feel bad. That's not why they do it. So then how do you respond to that? What does Paul say here in verse 13? Esteem them, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So we're meant to think of them, consider them, regard them in love. As they fulfill their God-given responsibilities, we esteem them, we think, we consider, we regard them in love. And what does that look like? Well, first and foremost, I think it means that we show them the same grace that we have in Jesus. Because they're not perfect. Leaders aren't perfect. They're just like you and me. They're not Jesus. And so we, we show them the same grace. We recognize that they're prone to make mistakes just as we are. 
Second, I think it helps when we remember that they're entrusted with the gospel and they're accountable to God. They're not accountable to you and me. They're accountable to God. And so, so they live to serve God. Yes, they serve you, but they do that in account to God. And so, as Paul says, you know, he, he speaks about this in chapter 2. Uh, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And, and when we remember that, it changes the way that we relate with them. They're accountable to God, not to us. They're accountable to God. And lastly, and I think practically, give them the time of day. Give them time. Give them your time. Leaders give and they sacrifice of themselves, their family and their time to serve you. Uh, and, and, and as Hebrew says, make it easy for them so that you gain the advantage and the benefits of that. Make it easy for them to serve you and to watch over you and admonish you. Make it easy for them to wash your feet. Any questions at this particular point? No? All right, let's, let's keep moving on then. At the end of verse 13, uh, Paul continues and he, he starts speaking to the church. So he's spoken to leaders, he's spoken about how we treat leaders. Now he speaks to the church and he gives this series of imperatives, this series of commands. We're going to look at a, uh, a few of them now. Uh, be at peace, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that revenge isn't done, uh, but always seek to do good. Uh, so he's got this series of commands that he gives to the church. Uh, we're not going to go into each one in detail, uh, but I do want to unpack this first one because I think it's important for us today. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Last Sunday, as, as we uh, just took some time earlier to remember and to pray, uh, an attack was carried out on churches and hotels in Sri Lanka. Uh, and, and while the media covers this story and the attacks in Christchurch just about a month before that, there are so many other things that are happening in our world. Uh, one report that I had a look at says in the last 12 months, in the last year, over 6,000 Christians in Nigeria have lost their lives to terrorists and extremists. Uh, we, we don't hear about that stuff. And there's plenty of others uh, that, that I've been able to find. And more and more, these are no longer isolated events. They're becoming regular occurrences in our global community. And I mean, you, ca- you can't ignore that. We can't ignore that. Uh, last Thursday, uh, Anzac Day, um, I went to the Anzac service. I, I took Joseph along and I went to the Anzac service. And at the end, I, thought it, I found it fascinating. Uh, they recited the Lord's Prayer. And the amount of people that, was a, that, that were able to recite the Lord's Prayer was astounding, but that's an aside. But in the prayer, and largely the prayer was about justice and peace. They prayed for justice and peace in this world. Now, in Australia, we live in relative peace uh, for now. Um, but our, 
our world around us, and it affects us here in Australia, is increasingly devoid of peace, at least true peace. And people are searching for peace. As all these things happen, people are searching more and more for peace. They're searching for hope. And personally, I think there is a day that will come in when all of this stuff that is happening, that is being bottled up in people, is going to break open and we are going to see a generation of people crying out for hope and for peace. We might not see it today. We might not see it tomorrow. But I, I think in a generation, the people that you're going to school with, that you're working with, in a generation's time, there is going to be a generation that is crying out for hope and for peace. And look, I don't want to be pessimistic or depressing, but the reality is as all this stuff unfolds in our world, the human soul is slowly being degraded and broken apart and people will come to a point where that will just break open into our world and people will cry out for hope. They will cry out for peace. And, that, and that's, that's history. You, you look through history and people are oppressed as people are subjected to the things that we are seeing in our world, it will reach breaking point and they will cry out for hope and for peace. Why am I saying all of this? Why do I make a point of this? Because when the world, when your families, when your friends, when your classmates, when your co-workers and acquaintances start looking for this hope and for this peace, they should find it here. They should find it here. And in any church that they walk into, they should find hope and peace. So Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. If the people of the body of Christ, the agents of God's peace, can't demonstrate and live out peace right here today, then we don't have an answer for them when they come looking for it. And so, I don't know about you, but you, you hear people saying that they want to they do something and make a difference in the world. They want to see world peace. They want to be at peace among yourselves starts here. In order for the world to discover true peace, it starts right here. Amongst the people of God, amongst the body of Christ, be at peace among yourselves. Now ISIS claims responsibility for the attacks in Sri Lanka. And Islam presents itself as a religion of peace. And while most moderate Muslims will see this as a non-violent peace. The extremists and the terrorists see this peace only achieved through this apocalyptic war to defeat the enemies of Islam. That's how they achieve peace. I don't know if you see the irony of that. That here are people who are seeking peace. And what do they do? They They attack the church. They attack the kingdom of peace and the people of peace. And instead of bringing peace, they bring destruction and despair. Now it is true that the hope and the peace that we find in Jesus will only be completely achieved when he comes again. When he ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, we will see full, full and true hope and peace fulfilled. But this is the thing for us today. We are called to be ambassadors of the kingdom, 
We are called to be agents of peace. We are called to demonstrate the peace that is found in Jesus now and today. And we pray the Lord's Prayer, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And as Christians, one of the things that we have the privilege of doing is giving people a taste of heaven. A taste of the peace and the hope and the life that is found in Jesus that will be fulfilled when he comes again. Be at peace among yourselves. Any questions? Let's, let's keep going then. This Christian life given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus is countercultural. It's countercultural. That is, it doesn't follow the same rules as the world. And these, as these, these commands that Paul gives us, as, as, we, as we said earlier, they're part of this process of sanctification. They're part of this process that distinguishes us from the world, that sets us apart from the world as we become more like Jesus. So what does it look like for the church then as we go through this process? These qualities here, I think, differentiate us from the way that the world lives. What does it say? Verse 14, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always to take Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We'll continue on uh, next week with the rest of the chapter. But we admonish one another. We lovingly attempt to correct one another's attitude and behavior. And in this particular case, the idol. Those who, who, who just kind of sit around and who are preoccupied with things that uh, that that a waste of time. Paul talks about this earlier. And he responds to this in chapter 4, verse 11. Aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And this isn't just the role of leaders. This is something that we all do. We admonish each other to just get on with life, to do the things that need to be done, rather than sitting around and just waiting for things to happen. Life gets tough and sometimes we get tired. Might even get discouraged from persevering in our faith. And so Paul says, encourage the faint heart. How do we do that? Paul, we, we saw this last week. Paul, in the end of chapter 4, says, encourage one another with these words. At the uh, verse 11 of chapter 5, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. How? Because we have this hope in Jesus, this hope that Jesus is going to give us this new life, that there is this hope of the resurrection. We talked about this at Easter. Also that we are saved by grace from God's, ro- God's wrath in chapter 5 and that we, that we obtain salvation through Jesus. And we encourage each other with the gospel talked about this before we we encourage each other with the hope and the life that is found in jesus we encourage each other encourage the faint 
help the weak. And whether this weakness is physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, Paul doesn't specify and it doesn't really matter. If anyone is weak, the body of Christ gets around them to help them and to support them. Help the weak. And, and this is, I think, key to all of these things. Be patient with them all. As we admonish one another, as we encourage one another, as we help one another, be patient. This, is, this overriding character should mark how we treat one another. Because none of us are perfect. And patience is the mark of love. We read this in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. More importantly, God is patient with us. God is patient with you and me. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with you. Be patient with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul reminds the church that there is no place for revenge in the body of Christ. And it's interesting, he says, see, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. To see is to be active in noticing what's going on around you. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a make sure there's no revenge among you. It's not stop revenge from happening. It's no, see. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Don't turn a blind eye to it. But in contrast, always seek, again being proactive, to do good to one another and to everyone. And the world defaults to revenge. The world defaults to repaying evil for evil. We do. When something goes wrong, when somebody wrongs us, when something is done to us, we default to revenge. We want to repay someone for what they've done to us. But that's God's domain. In response to the attacks in Sri Lanka, one, one, of the, one Christian leader writes this, and I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it's worth, worth reading. The doctrine of God's judgment on earth, because that's God's domain. Right, revenge is God's domain. The, the doctrine of God's judgment on earth and at the end of time is one of the factors influencing our response to the evil that occurs on earth. God gives us the freedom to take our hands off the revenge cycle. Instead, we are to hold, to do what we can do. We are to love our enemies and bless them. Without a doctrine of judgment, we would be too bitter to forgive and show love to those who hurt us. Freed from bitterness, we can be agents of healing and reconciliation. This is especially true in a situation like Sri Lanka's attacks, which are being counted as revenge for the Christchurch mosque attacks. We can choose to stop the downward spiral of revenge where violence begets violence and huge destruction results. Do you get that? Because judgment... Because revenge is God's business, we can let go. We are free to let go. When people hurt us, when people do things against us, instead of being caught in this cycle of revenge, 
we are free to step out of it and instead we're able to love. We're able to love our enemies. And we can seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And this is who we are as as a community, as the body of Christ, shaped by the gospel. These are the things that we should be characterized by. That we come together to encourage, to admonish, to help, and to be patient with one another. Not seeking to respond with revenge, but to seek to do good. And this is the will of God for your sanctification, for my sanctification, and the sanctification of his church. This is what Paul has been on about all through this letter, that we might walk in a manner worthy of God. We see that in chapter 2. We might walk properly before outsiders. We saw that in chapter 4. He doesn't expect us to do this on our own, but within the fellowship and the support of the body of Christ. We need to encourage one another and do so in patience and in love. These are the things that set us apart from the world. Just imagine for a moment if that was the norm, if that was the standard way that we treated each other. A place where you could be lovingly encouraged to be a godly person rather than being judged and criticized for failing to live up to some human standard. A place where you could find encouragement and help when you're weak and you're tired. A place where people deal with you patiently as you wrestle and struggle with the reality and struggles of life, the stresses of life. A place where we seek to do good rather than being constantly on guard that someone's going to stab you in the back. Just imagine what that would look like. Now, if you're feeling like this is just completely overwhelming, like the rest of this letter, Paul finishes this this letter in verse 23 and 24 with these words. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Listen to these words. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. And as we live out this Christian life, as we pursue and strive for these things, not just the things we've seen in this letter, but in all of Scripture, as we seek to live for Jesus, as we seek to follow and walk with Him, God will do it. And it happens as we surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow Him to work in our lives. Rather than striving in our own ability and our own thoughts and opinions and our own strategies of how we can be better people as we surrender that to God, as we surrender that to his spirit that dwells within us who trust in Jesus, he will do it. He will surely do it. Church would be great without people. It would be. I'd rock up and get to entertain myself and do the things I want to do. But as Jesus takes hold of our lives, we aren't simply transformed personally, 
But corporately, we're adopted into the family of God and the mess of sharing life with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't come to Jesus and not be brought in to the family of God. And in this gospel community, God places leaders in the church as servants of the body so that we might honour them for their service as they serve us. But they don't carry that load on their own. Instead, the whole body works together for the building up of each person, of each part of the body. We all play a part in each other's lives so that we might walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Something I've been talking to people about recently is that God God in his wisdom has created us from birth to death And at no stage of that life progression does no one have anything to offer. From the moment a child comes out of the womb and breathes his first breath, he has something to offer you. And from the moment that the person is lying on his deathbed and takes his last breath, they have something to offer you. At no point in between life and death is anyone worthless in the kingdom of God. Because at every point of that life, there is something that they can teach you something that they can pass on to you, something that will build you up. And that's the amazing thing about being part of the family of God, that no matter what stage of life you are at, you have something to show of Jesus. And it's amazing when you, when you take, heart, take that to heart, that a child from the moment it's born to the moment that you take your last breath, You have something to offer the body of Christ. You have something to offer to the people of God and this world. So in the church, in the body of Christ, in the gospel community, there is no place for Christian hermits, loners or lone rangers. It's a paradox. It doesn't work. We need each other as God continues to work his will in us. And that's our sanctification. The gospel, this life we find in Jesus, brings us into a new community where we are all involved in a process of becoming more like Jesus. And it's hard work. And we need to be patient. But again and again, we're reminded that this isn't something that we do on our own, in our own strength or our own ability. But instead, it is the work of God who calls us by his spirit. And he will do it. And the day will come when it will be done. And we look forward to that day when Jesus comes again and we are brought together with him in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you And we bring to you our lives. We bring to you our weaknesses, our failures, our brokenness. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus that you redeem all of them. And you seek to restore them. That is, we look forward to the day that you will come again. 
that we are in the midst of this process of change, of transformation into the likeness of Jesus. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be the body of Christ. And as we've seen uh, in your word today, help us to be characterized by these qualities as we seek to build one another up, as we strive to be like Jesus. Help us to surrender and to trust you to work in us. That we might be a place where people might find the hope and the peace that they so deeply long for. Help us to be your church. And so we commit ourselves to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.